It's Emily here, and welcome back to He Says, She Says, God Says. It's been a while since our last episode. That's because there's been a lot going on in the world. But Ben and I have been working behind the scenes on a few episodes, including a series on mental health, which we're planning to release over the coming months. In this episode, Ben interviews David, who is a mental health practitioner. Originally, it was only supposed to be a short introduction, but they ended up chatting for quite a while, which is really quite strange because both of them are really introverted. But don't tell them I told you that. Anyway, what they did do is they covered so much great information that we decided to actually create an episode in itself. You will learn a lot here. So please enjoy. David, welcome to He Says, She Says, God Says. Yeah, thanks, Ben. This is just an amazing honour to be here. Absolutely. Never in my life would I have thought anyone would invite me to a podcast. Well, you're not here as a guest, so we have our guest segment coming up after this. But the reason I've invited you on is because of your professional expertise and your Christian expertise and those two things together. So today our episode is part one, I think, in probably a two or three part series on mental health and mental health inside of marriages and relationships. And so today we're going to be talking about anxiety and we've got a young couple who we interviewed a little while ago about their journey with anxiety inside of the marriage, Max and Tash, which you've listened to. I've listened to probably a dozen times and <laughs> I love it. I think it's a fantastic story, uh, not only about their story about dealing with anxiety, but also with anorexia nervosa, Yeah, which is, again, it's an amazing story. And so from a mental health professional and also as a human being and as a Christian, it's an amazing, phenomenal story and they tell it so well. Mm-hmm. So I'll never get sick of listening to it and I hope I haven't oversold that <laughs> for the people that are about to hear it. Well, they can send us an email afterwards and tell us if you have. So let's start with your background. And the reason I asked you here is because you are a professional in mental health. So can you talk a little bit about your professional experience? Okay. I started my professional clinical career as a general nurse and moved into mental health a few years after that. How long ago was that now, roughly? Well, I started my training in 93 at the Uni of South Australia. Mm-hmm. And then I did do some work at the Repat Hospital in the mental health unit at the time. Just after I qualified in 96, I started working there. And then in 99, I'd come back from England and did my mental health training, graduate diploma, mental health nursing. And since then, I've been working in general health. I worked in the prison system and I worked in mental health. But in the last 17 years, I've worked in mostly emergency departments. So at Norlunga Hospital and Flinders Medical Centre. And my current job is I lead the mental health team as a nurse consultant in the Flinders Emergency Department mental health team. But I should just say I'm not here, just a little bit of a disclaimer, I'm not here representing them and I do have to make that clear. I'm very happy to talk to you about my experiences and my personal beliefs and my professional beliefs, but just as a little disclaimer on behalf of the government, I'm not here representing them. Sure, that's fine. That's okay. So, I mean, outside of that, you have some volunteer roles outside of that. You've won some awards over the years. Yeah, I do a few different things. I mean, I'm very proud of my career as a mental health nurse. A few years ago, I won the Premier's Nursing Scholarship, the South Australian Department of Health. That took me to Canada on a scholarship, which was just awesome. And a couple of years ago, I won an award 
the Achievement Award with the Australian College of Mental Health Nurses for my experience and my work in using solution-focused brief therapy within the mental health nursing. And since then, I've become, I guess, my hobby or my focus in mental health nursing and my main approach is an approach called solution-focused brief therapy. And I volunteer in a role as president of the Australasian Association for Solution-Focused Therapy, which has just been an awesome experience because I get to meet people from all around the world who will contact me and email me and we have conversations with and we meet up and it's been an amazing experience to work in that role. Mm. It's taken me it's taken me to some amazing places that most mental health nurses you wouldn't experience. So when we talk about mental health, we've probably heard more about mental health in the last you know, probably four or five years than we probably did in the 15 or 20 years before that in mainstream media and inside of corporations and inside of family units. Can we talk perhaps a little bit about what mental health is and then perhaps the three that we probably may end up covering in this series? What's anorexia? What's anxiety and what's depression? Mental health is a strange concept because, well, it's a concept, it's a philosophy, but it also it's medically can be diagnosis as well. And depending on your personal beliefs and stance, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. So from a medical perspective, we talk about not so much mental health, but mental illness. And that's a bit of a dilemma that I have. I'm a mental health nurse. I work for the South Australian Health Department. I work for Flinders Mental Health. I work for Southern Mental Health, but I spend my whole day talking about mental illness. And I'd much rather talk about mental health rather than mental illness. But you're right. When I was young, we never spoke about mental health, mental illness, suicide, depression. I'm sure it was there, but not to the extent that we talk about it now. Let's talk about the different types of mental health or mental illness, perhaps. So anxiety and depression are probably the two that we most commonly hear about today. But I'm not sure everybody really understands exactly what anxiety is mm. and exactly what depression is. Well, we talk about anxiety and depression as being a high prevalence disorder. Statistically speaking, yes, it's a high prevalence disorder. And every second person you talk to has had some experience with either themselves or someone very close to them having troubles with anxiety and depression. And I guess you look at it as a spectrum from normal to abnormal. So if you look at the normal spectrum of anxiety and depression, anxiety, for example, is something that we are born with, something that God gives us. And it's something that saves our life. It's a mechanism that's in our body, which is meant to be there. And I'll give an example. Back a few years ago, I remember crossing South Road on the corner of South Road and Sturt Road. Which is a pretty busy intersection for those that are not from Adelaide. Before the uh, roadworks there, it was the busiest intersection in Adelaide. There's about five lanes of traffic going in each direction. And so when you walk across there at the lights, you press the lights, you wait for the little green man to come, and you walk across, but you only get halfway across before the light turns red. And so inevitably you're stuck in the traffic island in the middle of the intersection waiting for the next green light to go. In between 10 lanes of traffic. Yeah, so you're literally standing between the traffic an arm's length either side of you, there's trucks and buses going past. And I remember standing there one day and my heart just started beating. And Beating or beating faster? Beating. Well, it was beating. <laughs> I noticed it beating stronger and faster. And I started to get really nervous. And I almost froze because I thought if I could move half a step, 
in one way or another, I'd get hit by a truck and it started to panic and it had a high sense of arousal and I was really just stimulated by all the traffic and the noise and my breathing started to get heavy and my heart started to beat stronger and then the lights changed and I walked across the road. But essentially it's the anxiety mechanism that was in my body which God put in my body which helped me to stop on the traffic island and to take notice of my surroundings and to be careful. Mm. And it's the anxiety that kept me alive that day because it causes us to stop and think. So that's a normal process. But we talk about anxiety disorders at the other end of the spectrum. It's the same mechanism, but it's gone wrong. Sometimes it fires off when it shouldn't be firing off. When you haven't got a bear chasing you or a truck about to run you down, but the mechanism starts firing off for no explained reason. Or it starts firing off for there is a trigger but it goes off in such an extreme way that's not required. So there's some sort of abnormal response, which is still the normal anxiety response that's meant to be in your body, but it's gone a little bit haywire. So we can talk about anxiety as in anxiety is good, or we can talk about anxiety in that it's very debilitating. I'll put a link in the show notes, I think, to another interview on a different podcast channel where a young man suffered from anxiety to the point of such debilitating symptoms that he would present like he was having a fit because it affected his body so badly that he would lock up and be on the floor and couldn't move and all sorts of extreme symptoms. Yeah, so it can be really debilitating that people don't leave the house, too scared to shower, too scared to go to the shop, too scared to talk to somebody, scared of something that inevitably is not going to happen. But they become so debilitated by it, they can't function. And that's where it becomes what we would say pathology. It becomes an illness that we would have to give treatment to. But somewhere in between, there's a range of anxiety where it gets bad. But do we call it an illness? Do we need to give treatment? And there's a whole lot of people in that area where you're not sure, is this a normal range of anxiety or emotion that we should be feeling? So given this is a podcast about marriages and relationships, And we will hear about Max and Tasha's story soon. Please don't tell Athena that I'm here. (laughs) My wife, Athena, she hears that I'm in a podcast talking about relationships and communication. She'll flip out. (laughs) I'm sure your kids are proud that you're here, aren't they? No. No. (laughs) As a partner in a relationship, what are the things that I'm seeing that aren't normal behaviours from the person? What am I seeing from my partner that I wouldn't have seen before or that are unusual behaviours perhaps for them? Well, a lot of what we do when we're trying to diagnose illness, so a big part of my job is to do assessments on people and to diagnose illness or hopefully not diagnose illness. But we talk to the people who know the patient. So I'll spend a long time talking to the patient in front of me, but then I'll talk to the people that know this person better than me who have known them for a long time to see if this is normal for them or has this changed over a period of time? So there are some disorders and illnesses and symptoms which you would see gradual change over time. There are other things that you will see a sudden onset. So then we have to work out what does that mean? But essentially, you could have someone who's a little bit anxious or a little bit depressed, but then there's a change in what they do. It might be a new symptom. Can you give us some examples of what those things might be? I'll give an example which you might hear in the podcast coming up where Max talks about being nervous about going out and always being a bit self-conscious, a little bit anxious about when he was going out. But he'd go through the process and he'd get ready and he'd feel a little bit anxious 
and he'd wonder about whether I should go out or shouldn't go out. But then he'd go out. And when he got out and he's hanging out with his friends and he's doing the things that he's wanted to do, he'd feel okay. I might say, well, that's normal for Max or that's normal for someone. They're a little bit anxious, they're a little bit self-conscious, but when they get there, it's okay. But then Max describes things that happened that were different where the intensity of the feeling became stronger. So it could, for some people, it could get to the point where they don't want to go out at all. They don't leave the house. Some people won't even go to the letterbox on the street. They won't go shopping. Or it could be that they're, they have a phobia about a particular thing, a particular object, a particular place, a particular person, or a particular activity, for example. And it leads to a whole lot of behavioral change. They don't go to work. They don't eat properly. Maybe they don't shower and take care of themselves. So when we see changes that affect the way that a person's been able to function in their life, we've got to start to wonder, is this gone too far? Is this becoming an illness that requires treatment? As a partner in a relationship, I'm looking for that change in behavior. You're looking for that change. And ultimately, in a marriage, your husband or your wife knows you better than anyone else. Now, that's not to say that over time we don't change because we all change through our life and experience and through our age. We see things differently and we do things differently, and that can be normal too. But you'd expect in that situation a gradual change. But there's change and there's change. The other part that Max talked about was that it affected a whole range of things. It affected his work, it affected his church life, it affected his relationship at home. His general enjoyment of life, he had decreased energy. There are a whole range of things that were different from perhaps the Max of you know, before that. And the interesting thing about Max is only a young guy. So they've been married a couple of years. He's a young guy who should be at, you know, heading towards the peak of life. You know, he's fit and young and healthy, involved in church activities, involved in work activities. And in a relatively short space of time, it all changes. So that would be different to if I looked at Max over a 30-year period, you would expect things to change in the way that he does things. He might not have as much energy. He might not be as enthusiastic about playing football or going to work. That's just life, right? That's life. Yeah. That's life. But in a relatively short space, and that could be days, months, could be a couple of years, someone who's young and fit and healthy and should be on top of the world, new marriage, exploring life, buying a house, there's some things that he should be involved in and enjoying, which he's not enjoying anymore. We'll still have stressful activities. For example, buying a house, losing a loved one, you know, through death, losing a job, global epidemics. They all bring stress. But where is a normal stress compared with a completely abnormal? And if you look at the definition of health, for example, I always go back to World Health Organization's definition of health and mental health. And one of the criteria they use about mental health refers to being able to cope with normal situations. So that, like I said, it might be a death, for example. Everyone's going to feel sad after they lose a loved one. It might affect their appetite. It might affect their sleep. They might not want to go to work. And they're all normal responses to grief. COVID-19, again, if you're not worried and anxious about COVID-19, you're probably not normal. But if you are worried and anxious, I'd say you're normal. That's what you're meant to do. As human beings, we are meant to worry about it. But if we worry about COVID-19 to the point where we're under the bed and don't come out for six weeks, that's not what lockdown's meant to be. So there's an extreme reaction to a not nice event. 
is probably a little bit more than just that's the normal human reaction. Okay. So we talked about some of the things that a partner might notice when their partner may be suffering from a mental illness. When they're going through that, what does that do for the partner who's not suffering? That's an interesting question because it's not something that in my workplace that I really deal with. And listening to this podcast, it really opened my eyes a lot about how the other loved ones, the partners deal with this as what we refer to as the carers. Because when we do an assessment on someone to see if they've got a mental illness or diagnosis, we spend most of the time talking to the person themselves about their problems and their symptoms and how it impacts on their life. And we might talk to the next of kin or the partner about how have you noticed this, but I would almost never talk to the partner about how are you coping with this. And a lot of things that Max and Tash talked about really opened my eyes to what they go through what a person goes through. And I think both of them refer to things like, this is not the person that I married. Now, they've only been, at the time, they'd only been married, what, a couple of years. And this should be an exciting time. You know, a young married couple exploring the world, exploring life and relationships. Now, this is different to someone who's got a medical illness, perhaps. If their partner is suffering from a medical illness, Essentially, they're still the same person. They might be pained, they might be sick, they might not be able to work, but you still sit down with them and talk to them and have a meal with them and be in love with them and communicate with them. And it's a different sort of thing. But when someone's got a mental illness, the way that they communicate, the way that they respond, the way that they act, is all different. And suddenly, as a person watching that, you've got to make sense of that. So is that to do with their mental illness, that they're talking like that? Is it because they don't love me anymore? Is it something that I've done? Or said or... Yeah. So you become self-critical and confused and scared. And I think both of them explain it really well. This is not the person that I've married. What do I do about this? I don't know. But the way that they've explained it and in retrospect how they've coped with it, I think this is phenomenal. And my admiration for what they've done has just been amazing. So can we talk about some of the options that are available to people if they or their loved one are suffering from a suspected mental illness? How should they approach it both from a Christian perspective as well as from a physical or practical perspective as well? Talking about from a relationship perspective first, there's some things particularly Tash said, how she was looking at Max and looking at how he had changed in relation or caused by this illness. And she said things like, I'm trying to love a person who's different to the person that I married. But she kept coming back to some basic grassroots thoughts. She said, I had to remember the vows that I made when I got married and the commitment that I made, sickness and in health, better or worse. So she had to remind herself frequently that I made a vow and a commitment to do this. But she said, how can I love him or how can I encourage him best? How can I be there for him? How can I make him feel loved? And the funny thing she says was, I failed at this daily. So again, she highlights that you can be very self-critical about everything that you do. But the fact that she thought about it and she was considering it daily, she might have perceived that she failed at it daily. But then I think about well, what did Max see? And Max saw the woman that he married next to him every day. She stayed there. She kept doing all the things that a loving wife 
a loving Christian sister should be doing. And I think Max even said things like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what she was doing, but I knew she was praying for me. So there was an acknowledgement. There were things that he could still see. So that's just bringing it back to grassroots basics. This is the vow that I've made. But I think we're very lucky in the fellowship that we're in that we have a community of people to support each other. So if one partner is watching the other partner suffer, you might not be getting the marital support that you need in that relationship to support each other. You might not have the strength. We have a community around us that we can draw upon. And and that is one of the important things in helping recovery from one of the important things in helping people recover from mental illness is community. It is. It is. And I always remember going to a seminar. It's a little bit off topic, but going to a seminar at the Uni of SA a few years ago, I was on World Mental Health Day and there was about 200 people there. There was a panel of four people at the front talking. And one of them was a chap from the International Red Cross. And his job was to do with disaster relief. So whenever there was a natural disaster in the world, like a tsunami, earthquake, he would grab a couple of people from the Red Cross and he would be there first. That was his job. Get there first, survey the landscape, work out what we need, and then call it in. And then the Red Cross would come in then, set up camp, start doing what they needed to do. So he had a lot of experience going all around the world looking at disasters. And he made a really interesting point. He said, in a disaster, what's the one thing that you need that's going to help you to live more than any other thing? So you think about, well, I need food, I need water, electricity would be good, access to healthcare. And you think about all these things that we need to survive. But he said the one thing that we need in a disaster is that we need to know our next door neighbor. Because if you know your next door neighbor, you've got a higher chance of surviving a natural disaster compared with anybody else. That's the number one. So I think about that. And why is that? Because, well, I've got family, for example. So if we had a disaster here in Adelaide, could I rely on my family? Now, Athena's family lived 20 kilometers away, so I can't just go over there. I might not have petrol in my car, or the roads might be blocked. So I can't just nip over there for a feed, or I can't see my family. They live 700 kilometers away. So maybe I don't have petrol. Maybe the phone lines are down. I can't talk to them. Maybe the shops are closed, so I can't get what I need from the shops. But if I know my next door neighbor, my plumbing might be broken, but their plumbing might work. I might not have flour, but they might have flour. So suddenly we can pull resources because we know them well and we'll survive. But if we don't know our neighbor, then we become isolated. We don't survive. So if I think if your disaster was a mental illness, how are we going to get through it? The only way to get through it is to know your neighbor. So whether that's literally your next door neighbor or a community that you can draw upon for your support and to get help and then care and share resources. So both Max and Tash talk about drawing on the resources from the fellowship. They talk about family and people in the fellowship that they could contact, draw upon. That's a different must be a difficult thing for someone who's suffering from anxiety is to reach out for help. He actually mentioned something about that when he put his hand up and asked for help from those around him. That's when everything changed. That was the point. He mm. said that everything changed. Mm. And there's a scriptural basis for that, I think, whether that's to do with mental health or addiction or physical health. But the scripture says to confess your faults one to another and pray to be healed. And so when we do confess our fault, we are opening the door to that support, to that prayer. But it's also an acknowledgement to say, I can call out to the Lord. I can call out to my brothers and sisters because I know it will help me, because I can draw upon the support from them or 
I can call out to the Lord because the effectual fervent prayer is what we require for the healing to happen. So effectively, we are acknowledging our faith and our belief by opening our mouth and calling out. And that's when everything changed for Max. So that covers obviously what we can do inside of a relationship to support a partner, what we can do in terms of encouraging you know, support from the community around us and family and friends, etc. What about professional help? Well, Max lists off a whole lot of things that helped him through this whole period. And I've already mentioned a couple, you know, knowledge that his wife was there and stuck by him and loved him unconditionally. He lists off a whole lot of other things. He talks about a group of friends, a small group of people that he trusted that he could expose his own weaknesses to and know that they would stick by him and the ability to talk about it. So whether that's talking about it with his friends, your pastor, your wife, complete stranger, a professional perhaps, the ability to talk about it. And I often think about the actor-writer Stephen Fry. Now, Stephen Fry has suffered with a bipolar disorder for a long time. He's made some amazingly interesting documentaries about his experiences with the illness. And one of the things that he says was the thing that helps him the most is not talking therapy, but listening therapy. The ability to go to someone and have them listen to what you're saying. And it's an unconditional, supportive listening. And it might be in that conversation they might say, well, hang on, you said this, but what about this? I just import something. But essentially, it's a listening therapy. And I think Max, to be able to go to his friends who he trusted and that they would unconditionally listen to him. Max also talks about professional support. He talks about going to a doctor, talks about medication, he talks about going to see a counsellor. So really, if you listen to the whole story, he's got a, an amazing network of support from professional and non-professional and even pharmaceutical. Now, I wouldn't necessarily trust some of those elements on their own. For example, I don't have a lot of faith in medication. I think that the evidence base for medication is pretty weak. Overall, well, when I say pretty weak, not as strong as what drug companies tell you it is. And not as strong as it's being administered no, today. That's right. I think it's over-prescribed. But Max talks about that in terms of that was one factor that helped him. I would say that if that was the only factor, he would be on shaky ground. But if that helped him a bit and being able to talk to friends helped him a bit, being able to talk to a doctor helped him a bit, being able to pray, have the support of a fellowship helped him a big bit. Having a wife who stayed by his side was a big bit. So he had so many factors working for him that he got through it. And part of the problem that I have when I work in the emergency department I have people that come in who feel depressed or feel anxious, but they don't have that. So whether it's a church group or a family, they don't have that supportive network. They don't have a neighbor they can call on or a friend they can call on. They don't have someone that can listen to them. And that's the big difference. The only thing that they might have is the prescription that the doctor gives them. And it's not as effective as all of these other things when we put them all together. And that's the thing that I struggle with at work. If everybody, all of my patients could come in, if they had that network that they could draw on, then they wouldn't come in, basically. So, Dave, the other thing that comes up in this conversation is anorexia. Now, I was surprised when we spoke off mic a few weeks ago about anorexia because I didn't realise that anorexia kills more people than any other mental illness. Is that correct? Yeah, if we look at mortality rates okay. of mental illness, Mental illness can affect you in a lot of different ways and it can lower your life expectancy and debilitate you in so many ways. Yeah. But if we were talking about what's the mental illness that's more likely to kill you, 
penis anorexia nervosa. It's an awful illness because it has huge effects, not only mentally, the way that you view the world, view yourself, view your relationships, but physically. Yeah. It can wear you down physically to the point of dying. And so in the emergency department where I work, if I see people with anorexia nervosa, the very first thing we do is we do physical examinations, blood tests, yeah. a huge protocol that we have to follow. And a lot of the people end up getting a review by the intensive care physicians. And a lot of them actually get admitted to intensive care because we think if we don't do this, they will die. So I used to think, this is in my pre-mental health nursing days, I used to think that anorexia was something about just about body image, trying to look good, trying to look good in the magazines to look like the people in the magazines and you associate it with being fit and healthy and skinny, particularly from a, a female's perspective. But it wasn't until I started working in the emergency department and I thought, how many people actually die from anorexia? This is a serious illness. So to hear Tash tell about her experience and also Max talks about his time visiting the what he called the anorexic unit. It's the statewide eating disorder inpatient unit and it's a very confronting place to go and visit because really you see predominantly and he describes predominantly young nice looking people and he talks about oh they've probably come from a good home they've got loving children with them but they're skin and bone to the point where their physical health and their life is actually at risk it's a big thing so we're dealing with both the physical and the mental so to see tash come through that so miraculously, it was somewhere around the point of eating bacon and eggs for breakfast with her family, where one minute, she's a very unwell girl, next minute she's eating bacon and eggs and she's been healed. That is just the most mind-blowing, miraculous thing. Now, to the point now, I haven't seen Tash for a couple of years, I've been away, she's got a child. So things like anorexia robs the ability of for you to have a children because your body weight is so low and your percentage of body fat is so low that a woman would stop menstruating, for example. So to see her fit and healthy and the child and telling her story, it's just an amazing thing. Mm, it's an amazing thing. Now I see people that have come back. I did a placement in the eating disorder unit back in 1999. I worked there for three months. And the other day I saw a woman in the emergency department who I saw 20 years ago in the eating disorder unit and she's still struggling with anorexia. I'm surprised she hasn't died. But what is it from a professional point of view that we can treat this illness with? And essentially, we try to keep people alive long enough to get them through it. Apart from that, it's a really hard thing to deal with, to treat. There's no magic pill for this one. Mm. We've got another amazing testimony, which I'll also put a link to in the show notes with uh, Alison and her miraculous healing of uh, anorexia as well. And she was at the point where her teeth were falling out and all sorts of things that were going wrong with her body. Teeth fall out, your bones become brittle because your body is starving itself and it starts to try to get the nutrients that it needs from inside the body. So it, the minerals and things that are stored in our bones, for example, the body tries to use that to keep alive. So the bones become brittle. Gums will start to rot and the teeth start to rot. Other bizarre things happening like hair starts growing all over your body to try and keep yourself warm because you can't maintain temperature. So your body just tries its hardest to try and keep alive, but all the time it's rotting inside. Wow. The perspective, though, 
particularly from women. And I should say that I think it's eight or nine out of 10 people with anorexia nervosa are female, but there are males as well that suffer from this perspective that they have, the lens that they look through their life at is so destructive and derogatory. They see themselves as an evil person, physically and mentally evil, not worthy, not worthy of love, not worthy of attention, not worthy of anything. It's interesting though, that one of the things that Tash mentions is that she felt she didn't have control. And one of the things that she tried to control was her eating and her weight. When you feel your life is out of control, sometimes that's the only thing you can control. And your sense of control takes over. I am in control here, but the reality is you're in control of something that's about to kill you. And Max's perspective on that, again, what did Max do to get through that period of time when he's watching his wife fade away in front of him? Interestingly, they've come back to the same things, both Max and Tash, their faith in the Lord, the support from their brothers and sisters in the fellowship, from the family members. And that might have been a small group of people. They didn't want to breach trust in their spouse by standing up in front of 100 people and say, hey, do you know about this? They kept it very close knit to their family and their closest people that they could trust and confide in. But all that time, looking to the Lord, looking to each other for support. How am I going to get through this? It's the best way. It's the only way. And like I said, if my patients in hospital had this, then they wouldn't need to be in hospital most of the time. David, thank you so much for coming and sharing your professional experiences and your Christian experiences and uh, helping us understand more about mental health and mental illness. And I look forward to getting you back again when we do our part two of this series. Well, thank you for the invitation. I hope that it helps to explain something. I notice you've got a book there on your shelf behind you. I've got lots of books on my shelf. Um, just, Diagnostic we, we, and... We better just say that we are actually in my home office recording studio with the appropriate four square metres of space per person. <laughs> <laughs> But I notice you've been reading up on mental health. You've got the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders there. I bought that a little while ago. I did a mental health first aid course a while ago, and it got me more interested. So I've been spending a bit of time doing some reading and other things. I've got to say that was probably the worst book that you could buy. Probably one of To understand mental health. It's probably the one I've read the least. <laughs> From when I teach mental health, in a few different places. I, I work a little bit at Flinders Uni teaching mental health to medical students, uh, to paramedic students and nursing students. And paramedic students particularly, they're big on that sort of thing. DSM-5, they want to talk about brain chemistry. They want to talk about oh, neurotransmitters and hormones and all this biological stuff, which is, to be honest, never been proven that it causes mental illness. But Doctors and paramedics are right into this sort of thing. But the knowledge of that sort of thing has never helped anybody get through a mental illness. The things that help people get through a mental illness are compassion, connection, love, trust, support. So in a natural sense, whether you're in this fellowship or have a Christian belief or not, if you don't have those things, you're going to struggle. One of the good things about our fellowship, we have all of those things, plus we have God. And... For us in our fellowship, we have a fundamental belief that a prayer to God or a faith in God can actually fix the problem or heal the illness. So when we combine that with all the support we've got, we're on a pretty sure bet that we can get through this. But the philosophy of 
trusting in medications that have not really got a strong evidence base or a biological approach that doesn't really have a lot of evidence base behind it. But you've got textbooks like you've got there. To put our trust in those things that are not proven, we're walking on shaky ground. And our entire mental health system is built around those principles. I think what Max and Tash explain is that they've put their trust somewhere else and they've got through the other side. They didn't say we're going to ignore the doctors, we're going to ignore medication, and I would never say that, but we've got to put it in the right perspective. Medication might help a little bit, but your faith in God, your trust in the community that we live in, the fellowship, the church, they're the things that will get you through inevitably. Amen. So there you have it, our intro episode to our mental health series. You have to stay tuned to make sure that you don't miss the following episodes. Subscribe for free using your podcast app, Spotify, or on our website. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or check out our webpage on www.hesayssheesaysgodsays.com. The other thing, I don't know whether I'll say this or not, but when I've said to my kids, I'm coming over to record a podcast, they thought I was joking. <laughs> Who'd want to listen to me? Anyway. Do these microphones pick up things like... Yep. So just be conscious of yeah. slapping. I, I always sit on my hands because I'm a hand talker. Um, <laughs> I'm a pen clicker. <laughs> Mostly I'm a beard puller, though. Beard pulling's okay because yeah. this is not video, so that yeah. works okay. As long as the hand doesn't go in front of our mouth, that's not, that's, that's not going to be helpful. That was an hour. Okay. So when we edit that down, that'll probably be 40 minutes worth. 40? No. Probably get 15 minutes out of that. Yeah, there's way more in there than 15 minutes. Yeah, 15 minutes of good quality, usable stuff. Oh.